Hello and welcome back to our third installment of Pedra's Points of Discussion podcast on the debate topic of should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome. This session has been brought to you by the Pedra Down Syndrome Focus Study Group. In the first episode, the panel gave an overview of Down syndrome and the most common skin diseases found in persons with Down syndrome. In episode two, the panel weighed the pros and cons of using immune modulators in persons with Down syndrome. So if you haven't listened to the first two episodes, go back and do so now. They're available on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcast. If you're just joining us, then you're hearing this disclaimer for the first time. So here we go. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. It's my pleasure to welcome back your moderator, Dr. Jillian Rourke. Dr. Rourke is a pediatric dermatologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Geisel School of Medicine. She is the founder and co-chair of PEDRA's Down Syndrome-Focused Study Group, and she has a monthly Down Syndrome Dermatology Clinic at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where she sees both children and adults with Down Syndrome. She has given many national lectures and podcasts to improve education and awareness of skin care in people with Down Syndrome. Once again, Dr. Rourke, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Jen. So um, I'm excited to start session three, our last session where we're going to have a more roundtable discussion on how to approach um, discussing immune modulator treatments with patients and families. So I just want to invite back our panelists, Dr. Krishore Velodi. Thank you so much. Excited for session three. Dr. Emily Gurney. Thanks, Dr. Rourke. And Dr. Christy Holland. Hello again. Excellent. So Dr. Velodi, let's jump right in and talk about discussing quality of life in people with Down syndrome, because I think that's really going to be the foundation of our roundtable discussion with patients and families. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's an area that's been in tremendous flux over the past many years. The, the idea that somebody with Down syndrome, especially a child with Down syndrome, should be expected to have a different expectation for quality of life, that those, that's a bygone era, thank goodness. Uh, people with Down syndrome should have the same expectations for quality of life as everyone else. And I think the parents should also have these expectations as well. And we set that bar for the families right from the beginning, that uh, if your child has a medical condition that that needs to be treated, then we should treat it. Uh, the, it's a sad commentary on the state of medicine that it really wasn't until the early 1980s where people with Down syndrome were even offered surgical care for cardiac issues or gastrointestinal issues because the thought process was that you know they weren't going to have a great quality of life after those surgeries. And of course, that's been proven wrong. And I think over and over again, people with Down syndrome are, are showing that uh, expectations for quality of life should be high. We know now that People with Down syndrome, when they're given access to the medical care and the education that they deserve, they're breaking limits that we thought they once had. They're going to college, they're living independently, they're getting married. There's so many things that people with Down syndrome are doing now that I think that any discussion about quality of life should be like it would be with a child who does not have Down syndrome. 
And I think we, as pediatric dermatologists specifically, um, are, are, we're in tune with this. A lot of us talk a lot about this. And I think patients and parents with Down syndrome bring this up with me. You know, no one's ever talked to me about my acne or psoriasis. I, I don't want my feet to look like this when I'm going to the pool. Can you please help me with this? Um, are there any specific questions that you have found through the years to, to, to assess quality of life um, in children with Down syndrome, things that you might ask? Um, just trying to give some good history pearls for people when they're trying to take this into consideration. I mean, I think I would ask a family, how is this condition affecting your child's ability to function, to go out into public? Do they, are they seeming like they're uh, perhaps uh, self-conscious or uh, having symptoms that are keeping them from being able to go to the birthday party down the street if they're if they're little and they're they don't want to go because they have a psoriatic patch and they're itching or or, or, or things like that that it's not just sh it should not be expected that they should have to uh, just deal with those problems in fact they should be able to have those problems managed like any other child would. And so I think I would, I would ask the questions uh, to a family of a child with Down syndrome the same way I would ask it to any other child. So as we uh, know, teenagers with acne, oftentimes that's a big issue. And it's an issue that can often be ignored, unfortunately, by primary care providers. You take that same child, same age, and with Down syndrome, and they may be even further ignored because the uh, primary care provider might say, well, you know, they have Down syndrome. Do they really care? And in fact, they do. And I think it's important for us to ask those questions um, in, in the same way that we would ask it of any other uh, patient that we take care of. Oh, that is that is so insightful. Um, and I, I know, Dr. Holland, that you've um, taken care of many patients with Down syndrome through the years, and you've had these conversations with families. And so I'd love to hear your approach um, to having a conversation when the thought is that care needs to be escalated to start talking about some, some of these immune modulator treatments. Um, how do you, how do you approach that? Well, I think, uh, it's a, it sort of reiterates a little bit of what Dr. Velody was saying, because, you know, when you offer topical therapy for something, the stakes are low. And so you're like, Hey, let's try this. And if it works great, you know, it's pretty low risk. Um, there's not a lot to worry about. And if you're considering moving beyond topicals to the next level, I think you really have to know, do the, do the risks of that potential treatment, you know, match the size of the problem. And so you have to understand what the size of the problem is and whether or not, you know, this is having a significant enough of an impact on the person's quality of life. You know, for me, it's easy to think about, you know, something painful and uncomfortable as hydradenitis that, you know, I think all of us have an easy time to imagine how that would affect. But, I, you know, when we think about other conditions like alopecia areata, um, where you might have one person where they could care less and another person where they won't leave the house. And so I think, you know, you really have to understand sort of what to what extent um, you need to go to get to improve that person's quality of life. So I think that's, that's really where I go, you know, with sort of trying to decide, is it worth it kind of thing is, is the way I look at it. Um, and then, you know, as I said, psoriasis is where I have the most experience uh, with these patients, but after topicals, you know, phototherapy is often thought about, you know, that's logistically challenging for a lot of families. Um, but 
you know, some of these kids wouldn't have an easy time being able to cooperate with wearing the eye protection in there or feeling comfortable in an enclosed space. Um, I definitely have had patients with Down syndrome who've received phototherapy, but others where, you know, there's, there's no way that we would expect them to be able to comply with that. Um, and I think as we have gotten medications, more and more options, I have less and less patients that are interested in coming in a couple times a week for phototherapy. Um, but they're, you know, that's a pretty safe uh, treatment. And then when we have the, when we move on to discussion for conventional therapy versus something like an immunomodulator, uh, it's, you know, both of them, I kind of explained to parents that both of them are going both those categories are going to be immunosuppressive with the potential risk of infection, because I think that's probably the, the top concern um, and the most common you know, side effect uh, that we, that real side effect that we might see. Um, and I spend some time talking about sort of global immunosuppression from some of the conventional therapies and how these newer ones are a little bit more targeted. And so in theory may allow more of your, the rest of the immune system to be functioning. Um, and we may not quite see as many, uh, infections it, with the targeted therapies as we might with some of the conventional, uh, Medicaid conventional immunosuppressions. And then we talk about sort of you know, how they're administered. Are they oral? Are they injection? And, um, and sort of what the frequency of injections would be, what the need for lab monitoring would be. Um, you know, it really is a many, in many cases, it's a trade-off of having an injection for your medication, but maybe less blood draws or a medicine by mouth um, with you know, more blood draws. Uh, and so sometimes that might, you know, sit uh, with one family uh, more than another if they have a preference. Um, I think one of the biggest questions that comes up when we talk about starting a therapy, um, and uh, Dr. Gurney men mentioned this was, you know, parents always ask, well, are they going to be on this for the rest of their life, you know, especially in the pediatric population. And, you know, I think having that discussion of if someone would prefer to be on a medication that they can cycle, potentially cycle on and off with, um, you know, that that's more realistic to do, I think, with a conventional medication where we don't see as much resistance develop after a drug holiday. Um, and, you know, we certainly have experience doing that with some of the older medications like methotrexate, you know, use it, get them better, take a break, um, and then go back on it. And some people like the idea of that. Uh, I think we, we don't know what 20 years, well, I, we don't have good data. I know there are people who've been on some of these biologics for that long, but you know what 20 years of being on one of these medications means and you know, how long do they truly um, remain effective? Um, but I, you know, I, I always warn people that if they go on a biologic and they choose to go off of it, um, you know, there's definitely risk that the next time they go back on it, it might not work as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, but you know, at, at that point, it's usually like, well, let's first get it under control, make sure it's better. And then we can have that discussion. So, um, did I answer all of your questions? No, Jill? I think that's excellent. You had such yeah. great talking points there. I think I want to flesh a couple of them out, um, and just loop in Dr. Gurney and Dr. Velodi, um, specifically on how to talk about this infection risk in, with people with Down syndrome and their, and their families, um, since Dr. Velody did such a nice job highlighting that in session two. So, um, you know, just, just to kind of nuts and bolts, like what are we going to talk about? Um, so Dr. Gurney and, and Dr. Velody, I don't know if you want to comment on that. 
Sure, I'm happy to, to start. So uh, as we talked about in session two, there are definitely an increased risk of infection in people with Down syndrome. We had talked about how they get a lot more sinus, ear, and uh, pulmonary infections. And a lot of that is anatomic, but a lot of that is also immune related. And we know that encapsulated organisms in particular are very challenging for the immune system in people with Down syndrome. We also know that they have some immunoglobulin deficits also. Uh, IgG2 and IgG4 tend to be lower in people with Down syndrome. We don't think that that causes any significant immune compromise, but we don't know for sure in terms of that. And so we know with this risk of, in, of difficulty fighting off encapsulated organisms that there's actually been some thought about beyond just the Prevnar vaccine series in infancy, we should actually be also expanding that and including a pneumovax uh, or PPS23 booster uh, for people with Down syndrome, maybe universally at some point. And so these are real serious uh, decisions that a family would have to make. And so certainly if you have a child as a pediatric dermatologist who's already having recurrent sinopulmonary infections as part of their uh, medical history, it may be an idea to maybe think about talking with an infectious disease or immunolo immunology specialist before um, so they could make an informed decision, the family could make an informed decision on which way they would want to go. I'm sure yeah, they, they can be helpful in those, in those areas. So it sounds like maybe a really good history question would be how many sinopulmonary infections have you had within the last three months, six months to a year? Yeah. And then, you know, it potentially even talking with your infectious disease colleagues about maybe drawing titers on, on, on to see how effective yeah. some of these vaccines have been before starting on a biologic. That would make um, perfect sense. And if they needed a booster, uh, of, you know, PPS 23 or something like that, they could get that before they started the, the inhibitor. Dr. Gurney, um, do you have any um, other thoughts on infection and, and how to uh, manage that conversation? Well, infection is, is a common complication that we see in, in many of our patients taking immunosuppressive medications, usually relatively benign upper respiratory tract infection. Um, but I think having a partnership with the primary care physician taking care of our patients is really, really important. And particularly in this situation when we are worried about potentially that increased risk of particularly the upper respiratory tract infection, since often, particularly in pediatrics, um, you know, pediatricians have excellent um, training and experience really treating that beyond what we may have as a subspecialist in dermatology. So I think having that partnership would be even more important treating a person with Down syndrome for these conditions. Um, I think understanding other risk factors the patient may have, or do they travel frequently to an area endemic with tuberculosis or something along those lines would be important to know. So we may wanna take just a little more time than we would have otherwise getting a little more in-depth history. Um, we probably are doing that with most of our patients we're starting on immunosuppression, but perhaps in this situation, another, another reason to pause and ask even more questions than we may have otherwise. Um, and then certainly I think um, standard pre-screening treatment labs and considering maybe um, increasing the frequency of lab monitoring in conjunction with a pediatrician or, you know, as Dr. Velody brought up, if, if we have the help of infectious disease or allergy immunology physicians, to kind of help guide whether we may need to monitor a little bit more frequently if it is someone that's had uh, more issues in the past with infection. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. I wonder if we can flesh out now a, a, a bit of the risk of malignancy. Um, 
And so Dr. Velody, you did a really nice job highlighting that in session two. I wonder if you can just kind of jumpstart that conversation for our listeners again. Yes. Yeah, so as we were speaking about before, the, the risk of malignancy, the, the main risk really is leukemia, and particularly in the under five-year-old, perhaps under 10-year-old, that's when we see most of the leukemia. It's, it's, it's opposite of what we, did, we see in children who don't have Down syndrome in terms of the type of leukemia that they might get. Uh, the younger child may get AML, which is usually an older child who doesn't have Down syndrome. And uh, ALL is, uh, is oftentimes the older child with Down syndrome, but the younger child who doesn't have Down syndrome. So they're very, very uh, interestingly almost flipped. Um, in terms of frequency, but in terms of malignancies that we've been talking about with these medicines and uh, thinking more along the lines of solid organ tumors, as we've mentioned, doesn't seem to be a major risk in people with Down syndrome, even into adulthood. It doesn't mean that it's zero, but it's certainly nowhere near as high as the general population. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you know, lymphoma being a big question of ours, it doesn't seem like that. That's an increased risk either. It's more of a specific kind of leukemia. You're correct. Yeah. Lymphoma. In fact, so much so that we used to screen children for celiac disease, the gluten sensitivity, uh, because we were worried that because celiac disease is so much more common in Down syndrome, that uh, untreated celiac disease would lead to small intestinal lymphoma if it went uh, undiagnosed and untreated. And what we've discovered is that in people with Down syndrome, even then, even if they're asymptomatic and untreated uh, for celiac, they were not having increased risk of small intestinal lymphoma. So they removed that. Uh, they, the American Academy of Pediatrics removed that recommendation for asymptomatic screening for celiac, specifically because there's such a lower risk of lymphoma in general. Mm. Oh, that is so interesting to know that backstory. Dr. Holland, do you have any other talking points about how you approach this malignancy um, question with patients and families? Yeah, I think it is a challenging uh, conversation and, and I do bring it up, but it is, um, you know, when you start talking about the C word, um, I think, you know, it's uh, all of a sudden people are like, maybe my skin problem isn't so bad. <laughs> um, but what, you know, what I try to highlight is that, you know, any immunosuppression, and this is even beyond sort of the Down syndrome population, but just pediatrics in general, that, you know, we know that immunosuppression can put people at risk for lymphoma. And, you know, the the reports of lymphoma, you know, do seem to be higher in certain patient populations, which may not be, you know, the pediatric population. And it may be more common when there's multiple immunosuppressive agents being used. Um, and I'm thinking more specifically about like the rheumatoid arthritis um, patients. So I, you know, I, I try to reassure them that, you know, we're not seeing you know, increased signals uh, in the data from pediatric uh, patients treated with these medications. But, you know, I can't tell them that that's a zero risk, um, but it is again, sort of going back to, you know, how, again, how big is the, the, the skin condition that we're treating um, versus this um, sort of what I would say theoretical risk, so. Yeah, I loved your Pearl. Does the size of the medicine match the size of the problem? You know, I think that's a really good takeaway. Um, and it, as is so often the case when we have these in-depth conversations about a topic, we end up, I think, asking more questions and we end up answering them. But I wanted um, all of you guys to highlight some of the work that's being done 
um, right now in the Down syndrome community to try to answer some of these questions. Um, so Dr. Velody, can you talk about the NIH Include um, project? Because I think that's really important work to highlight. Yes, we've definitely seen a dramatic increase in funding for Down syndrome specific research. As we've kind of alluded to during uh, these sessions, we've seen how uh, there isn't very much clear, good, kind of large sample size data in, in anything, not just dermatologic issues in Down syndrome, just Down syndrome in general. And one thing that uh, has been a challenge is, is, is trying to find funding for those projects. And so when the National Institutes of Health and the INCLUDE project came along in 2018, it was, it was so longed for in our groups. We all wanted this, uh, to, it's a research initiative to, to improve the health and the quality of life in people with Down syndrome. Their, their funding is towards basic science research, but the, go the goal is to have a large study population of individuals with Down syndrome so that trials can be conducted. And so that we don't have to say, well, there was three case reports. We can say that there were 3000 people enrolled or something, you know, where we can get very effective, very useful data. And as we've talked about, even on this podcast, boy, wouldn't that be helpful for a lot of these uh, conditions you guys are treating all the time as well. And I know Dr. Gurney, where you are, you're kind of at the epicenter of a lot of that research yes. at the University of Colorado. Can you talk about some of the work that's being done there um, that's being funded by the NIH Include Project and obviously other external funding too, but that'd be great if you could touch upon that. So I'm a very small part of a very large and interesting and exciting um, research team that is looking at the use of JAK inhibitors in persons with Down syndrome. So we have right now a phase two trial enrolling children and adults age 12 to 50 with Down syndrome um, who have moderate to severe skin conditions, including alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, hydradenitis, vitiligo, or psoriasis. Um, we have completed our interim analysis, which was really promising, and we'll be enrolling uh, new patients soon. We do have travel support for families who are interested in participating to come to Colorado, fun place to visit as a side note, um, who may want to be interested in, in participating in the study. And the interesting thing is the study really looks at diverse endpoints. So really safety is, is a key thing that you know we've talked about a lot, of course, during this this podcast. Obviously, we're looking at efficacy as well, but safety has really been central uh, to this study. So um, that's an important um, kind of consideration I think we all have talking about these medications. Um, and then also looking at what is the role of JAK inhibitors in decreasing systemic inflammation in persons with Down syndrome and what other effects might that have for them? Might that improve their cognition um, and other sort of things that we may not think about as dermatologists necessarily prescribing these medications. So um, it's been really exciting to be, again, a very small part of a very large research collaboration here. If you have patients who you think might be interested in our study or at least learning more, um, they or you can contact us um, at the email address for our study coordinators, which we will have in the podcast notes for you. No, that's, that's really, that's really exciting that you're able to be a part of that work. I wonder, Dr. Velody, can you touch a little bit about the Lumind Institute? Because I feel like that's a nice kind of, um, that's a nice interface between the NIH and some of the other initiatives going on. 
Yeah, Lumind is a group. It's the it's the largest uh, non-governmental source of funding for Down syndrome related research. Uh, they really look into kind of cognitive research in Down syndrome, learning, memory, and speech. Uh, and their their goal also is to to empower their the families through education, connections, support. So it's a very well rounded group and looking at. Uh, uh, funding Down syndrome related research. Again, such an important uh, component of, of, of what we need to do to, to move medical care forward. And then um, Dr. Holland, we're maybe going to be biased on this answer because you and I are both part of the, the PEDRA Down syndrome subgroup, but can you can you just highlight some of the work that, that we've been doing and, and that I guess maybe that like, we exist? <laughs> Sure. Well, I'm definitely going to give a shout out for my colleague, Dr. Jillian Work, because she has been amazing at sort of energizing our group uh, to move forward with start to try to start to answer some questions and get more data about um, pediatric patients um, with uh, skin conditions who have uh, Down syndrome. Um, we uh, we we currently are getting um, positioned to um, first try to establish you know what kinds of skin conditions these patients have um, by doing a retrospective review at uh, di- looking at diagnosis codes so that we can kind of see like what what are our patients coming in with because there there's a handful of reports in the literature but um, you know sort of single institution and and so we think there could be value in. Uh, networking with our colleagues and being able to define uh, the disease burden and and types of diseases. Um, We also uh, are working uh, on a quality of life study. Um, Dr. Rourke has worked on an instrument um, with uh, one of our members uh, and is going to be deploying that. Uh, And um, we're also, uh, we have an upcoming meeting, so um, we're excited uh, about that. But I, we're, we're really interested in um, trying to work together to identify our cases uh, retrospectively uh, to, of patients who've been treated with some of these immunomodulatory agents um, with the hope that by doing it in a retrospective manner, we may have some more long-term data um, to be able to say what kinds of um, events or issues were noted, if any, um, which, you know, prospective is always the better way to go, but, um, you know, that that would be a, a pretty long uh, study to do, but I think we can get some initial information and certainly add to the literature, because right now, you know, in terms of what you can find in the literature about Down syndrome with some of these immunomodulatory medications, I'd say there's less than... Uh, 10 easily um, individual cases through case reports and case case series of these medications being used for things like psoriasis, hydradenitis, um, and a couple of inflammatory bowel disease, but um, so not a lot out there. I know, Dr. Holland, I remember you saying as we started to work together, oh, wow, I didn't realize that all my patients should be case reports, (laughs) you know, like we need to start talking about this more. Um, so I, I wanted to end on talking about 
shared medical decision-making. And maybe Dr. Velody, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you because I think a lot of our conversation in session three has been centered around our conversations with um, parents. And uh, we have a really important, active, engaged, empowered person in the room who's there too. And that's, that's the patient. And so I want to know um, from you, some pearls for our listeners on how to engage everybody in making this decision. Yeah, I think uh, as we all learn in working with uh, pediatric patients that engaging the patient is probably the most important thing we can do. If you want to have a good heart exam, lung exam, belly exam later on, or a skin exam, or any of those things, you need to have engaged that patient throughout the history taking portion, letting them know that uh, you are someone that they can trust as you're doing your exam. And also that they can trust that you're going to include their viewpoint in the next steps. And of course, that's going to change as they get older. You know, a one-year-old who says, I don't want to take my antibiotic is, is obviously not going to be listened to. But a 15-year-old who says, I don't necessarily want to come in for injections, you know, every week, every month, every three months, that, that, that needs to be taken into account, not just what the parent wants or we as the physicians want, but what does the child want as well? So I think that's probably the most important thing is engaging as developmentally appropriate, but making sure that you understand that even a child who you may not think understands what you're asking very often receptively children with down syndrome are on par with their uh, age age peers and so it's they probably are understanding what you're saying even if expressively they may not be able to say it quite as uh, efficiently all the time and receptively they're understanding what you're asking so i think it's a good thing to to get into the habit of I think one um, pearl that you've taught me through the years, Dr. Velody, is to ask about hearing and like be very kind of upfront about that because a lot of our patients with Down syndrome have hearing loss. And, um, you know, sometimes parts of the conversation are missed because of that, because we're not facing a certain way or because they can't hear as well out of their left ear as their right ear. Um, so I, I think that that, um, so thanks for, for teaching me about that. Yeah. <laughs> as the husband to... of an audiologist, I can't believe I didn't even consider that in the answering of the question, but you're right. Um, it's okay. I gave you a softball, um, <laughs> as, as the husband. So, um, yeah. So um, Dr. Holland and Dr. Gurney, do you have any other pearls for us on um, shared medical decision-making and, and approaching that conversation? I think you've already had so many wonderful, wonderful things to say. So just. I don't have a whole lot else to add to that kind of excellent summary we've just heard. And um, other than, you know, I think we all need to remember everyone is an individual and that includes, uh, you know, people we take care of with Down syndrome, what works for one, one person may not work for the next person that walks into your door. So I think setting those expectations and asking questions um, with an open mind at the beginning of every new patient encounter is important. Yeah, that's really well said. And I, I guess the only other thing that I would add, um, because most kids, uh, when you talk, especially if we're talking about an injectable medication, you know, most kids, you know, are worried about it hurting, um, and being uncomfortable and, you know, giving them some suggestions and some ideas of how to reduce uh, the discomfort. Um, for some of these medications, we can offer in-office administration, which gives us even more, uh, options to help because we can have child life come. Uh, we can use the, I'll call it the needleless um, administration of lidocaine <laughs> to avoid giving the brand name. I know this isn't CME, but I feel like I, I can't say that, but, um, but that really helps. And then topical lidocaine, 
um, and those kinds of things. And we have, you know, a vibrating device that can be put at the place of the injection that can also help from a distraction uh, technique. And, you know, some of those things can be done at home, but trying to make it as easy and as comfortable for the kids to um, make them less, have more buy-in from them and less fear of it. So. No, that's excellent. I think our, our child life colleagues are, are uh, I oftentimes call them the, the fairy godparents of our clinic because they really just make all the difference and are a huge part of the sh shared medical decision-making conversation. Um, so I just wanted to thank um, our listeners, thank our panelists, um, Dr. Krishore Velodi, Dr. Emily Gurney, and Dr. Christy Holland. Um, thank you so much to Pedra for allowing us to have this conversation. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to, to more Pedro Pro podcasts in the future. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. This concludes our three episode series on our points of discussion debate topic. Should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome? I would very much like to thank Dr. Jillian Rourke for a fantastic job moderating and a huge thank you to our amazing panelists, Dr. Kishore Velodi, Dr. Emily Gurney, and Dr. Christy Holland. Thank you so much for participating. I would also like to especially thank our program sponsors, Abvi Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. You can find more Points of Discussion podcasts in iTunes, Spotify, and in uh, Google Podcasts. You can also check out our Getting to Know You podcast channel and hear from our members and what they are doing, how they got to where they are in their careers. It's very exciting. I highly recommend it. And lastly, if you do want to become involved in the work that's happening at the University of Colorado with Dr. Gurney, you can email dsresearch at c-u-a-n-s-c-h-u-t-z dot e-d-u. You'll be able to find that email and a phone number to call in the episode notes. Thanks so much for listening.